in 2003 to coincide with the Emperor Guangxu's 100th anniversary of his death, the Chinese government commissioned a study. The study's purpose was to answer the age-old question, was the late emperor poisoned to death? When the study's findings were released in 2008, exactly 100 years after the emperor Guangxu's death, the conclusions that were reached in the test probably shocked no one familiar to the story. The deceased emperor's hair and clothing samples were analyzed, and it was determined he died of acute arsenic poisoning. Arsenic levels were at least three times more than control samples that were also analyzed. From the time of his death, it had been suspected he was poisoned. Now it was confirmed. While the study's conclusions did not name how he was poisoned or who may have done it, it was long suspected that the dark shadow, the Empress Dowager, was the culprit. There were two others that have been mentioned as possible culprits, but even these two had links or were involved with the Empress Dowager in some way with the Emperor's death. She certainly had motive and an, and an incentive in disposing of the, of the Guanshu Emperor, as I will explain. Welcome to my podcast, The Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold. This is Episode 18, Dark Shadow Emperor. In the last episode, I discussed the restoration efforts put forth by the Qing Dynasty. In an effort to save its dynasty, China, and themselves. We also learned that Japan had made its appearance into this story. And finally, the death of Tongzhi, the emperor, and the shenanigans involving his successor. I also inform my listeners about my new podcast series that will begin at the conclusion of this podcast series on the Qing Dynasty. In this episode we find out if the restoration efforts were real or illusory. There's much more foreign drama and the Empress Dowager's dark shadow that would be cast on the Emperor's reign and legacy and the dynasty in China. Also, at the end of this episode, I will give even more details about my new podcast series. As I mentioned, the previous emperor, Tongzhi, died unexpectedly and with no issue. 
This was an unprecedented situation. Never before in the 250-year history of the Qing dynasty had an emperor died without issue. So in steps now the Dark Shadow, or the Emperor's Dowager, with a solution. The deceased emperor's three-year-old cousin was was chosen. He was the empress's younger sister's son. Empress Dowager went to the extraordinary step of adopting the three-year-old so she could act as his regent. While there was some concern and objection over this arrangement, the empress quickly squelched it. The new emperor's name was Aishin Jielo Zaitian. I will refer to him by his official emperor name, Guangshu. And he was born on August 14, 1871, at Peking. And he ascended to the throne officially on February 25, 1875. Unfortunately, Guangxu has been perceived as a puppet emperor. While he was smart, well-read, and curious, particularly about foreign systems and political reform, he was shy and reserved and lacked the personal will to resist the scheming, manipulative, and powerful Sishi. He finally came of age in 1887, but had to wait an additional two more years before Sishi allowed him to take over. She was never far, however, and never truly gave Guanshu complete control. She was always a shadow, and a dark one, a very dark one, at that. Now, I've talked a lot about the Empress Dowager, or Sushi, and I cannot overstate her influence on the course of the last 50 years of the Qing Dynasty and Imperial China. While I am sure there exists some scholarly work or revisionist history that portrays Sushi in a better light, I came across none. She's completely demonized. Her reputation is of someone selfish, scheming, untrustworthy, incompetent, and arrogant. The common term that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely seems particularly fitting when speaking about Sushi. For my podcast, I seriously thought about doing an entire episode on her. After all, her almost 50 years of control over the Qing dynasty is only shorter than the reigns of Kangxi and Xianlong. I decided instead to just weave her into this story. Where applicable. This is much like her rule from behind the screen. She is there but then she's not there. A shadow, dark and obscure. After the palace coup of 1861, we've already learned is when she began her grip. Initially, 
the Emperor Xianfeng's half-brother, Prince Gung, was given a, a large role. But Sishi eventually demoted him. After her son, the Emperor Tongshu, died, is when the full force of her power took hold. Her co-regent, the Empress Dowager Xi'an, died suddenly in 1881, and this left Sushi in full control. There were rampant rumors of Sushi's sexual proclivities, particularly with eunuchs, even into her advanced age. I could go on and on. In 1898, Guangxu finally tried to assert himself, and he instituted what is known as the 100 Days of Reform. Guangxu had organized a group of progressively oriented officials around him, and he issued a broad series of reforms and edicts. His reforms were sweeping, and they were meant to reform almost every aspect of Chinese society. To make the Qing dynasty along the lines inspired by Western cultures and Western countries, particularly Japan. Guangxu's, Guangxu's reforms were meant to occur quickly. It was speculated that one of the changes or reforms he sought was for China to become a constitutional monarchy. something similar to the United Kingdom or Spain and Japan. Nonetheless, from the inception, the reforms were caught up in a power struggle between the emperor and Sishi. No surprise. Many elites and conservatives were scared and outraged about the proposed reforms and went to Sishi for her to intervene. With the aid of a top imperial military commander that we'll meet later in this podcast series, Sishi conducted a coup d'etat. She placed the emperor under arrest and had him confined to his palace. She spread rumors that the emperor was mortally ill and that he was unfit to rule. Many of his supporters were also arrested, arrested and executed. Others fled the country. There were some meager protests from some of the foreign powers over her actions, and that probably saved him from being executed himself. But he would never have any power after his arrest. It is important to put in context what was happening in China the last half of the 19th century. From 1850 to the year 1900, Europe had made lots of modernization and political progress and regeneration. So did Japan. But China did not. Many things were going on at this time that were all detrimental to the Manchus and China's continued path unless they made drastic and dramatic changes. The latter half of the 19th century saw an unstoppable loss of China suzerainty. In the 1880s, France established a protectorate in Vietnam, and it began to absorb Indochina into its fear and control. And as we know, 
Vietnam was an important tributary to the Qing's. The French placing troops in Vietnam were hostile to the locals, and they requested help from China. And in 1884, war broke out between China and France. The Franco-Sino War, which lasted about a year, was a one-sided affair in favor of the French. The French had naval superiority, and they blockaded food reaching China. During this war, the French, for a short time, occupied Taiwan and the Pescadores. In June 1885, the two sides settled their differences. China lost Vietnam, and the French were allowed to continue to occupy Taiwan and the Pescadores. The whole affair was seen as another humiliation for the Qing dynasty and China. The loss prompted the English to do the same, and in 1885, China lost Burma. An agreement was signed in 1886 between the English and China that reduced Burma to an English protectorate, but allowed Burma to continue to pay tribute to the Manchus once every 10 years. As if that wasn't enough, the Manchus also had plenty of trouble with their northern neighbors, Russia and Japan. In the 1870s, China lost more territory to the Russians. The Russians seized the Ili Valley. Also in the early also in the early 1870s, Japanese traders began showing up in Shanghai on foreign ships. After that, the Japanese Meiji government wanted official relations with the Qing government. It should be remembered that Japan was a tribute state under the Ming, but not under the Qing. The Japanese sent a diplomatic diplomat to Peking for a treaty. Despite the initial reluctance by the Manchus, an agreement was eventually reached. The Qing dynasty were initially reluctant because they believed it might set a precedent with other tribute states, i.e. Vietnam and Korea. Also, the Qing dynasty did not trust the Japanese. However, progressives in the Qing government eventually won out. They argued that Japan was not a tributary under the Qing and saw an equal treaty with their neighbor as a good thing. So in the summer of 1871, a treaty was reached between China and Japan. It was a non-aggression pact. They both agreed to help each other in the event of third-party aggression. There was mutual consular jurisdiction and also treaty ports were opened up as well as trade issues. Two years later, Japan sent its ambassador to Peking to, extre- to exchange the treaty ratifications. In the background, however, was the Formosa incident, which had occurred about two years earlier, and the Japanese used the treaty ratification meeting to try and gauge the Manchu reaction to it. 
1871, Formosa, of course that's Taiwan, Aborigines, had brutally murdered 54 shipwrecked Ryakua sailors, or Ruku sailors. The Ruku Islands are that very long chain of islands in the China Sea stretching from the south of Japan all the way to Taiwan. Some of you may have heard of Okinawa, which is one of its important one of its important islands. These islands had been an important and regular regular tributary of China since the late 14th century. It paid annual tribute to the Manchus. So why did the Japanese care about the murder of the Ruku sailors? Well, the answer is the Japanese were attempting to assert its right to speak on behalf of the murdered sailors. After all, Taiwan was in China's jurisdiction. So what were the Qing going to do about the murder of these sailors? demanded Japan. Suddenly, the question of the Ruku Island status was now front and center. Its status, in terms of whether it was an autonomous nation, or a tribute of China, or a tribute of Japan, had remained ambivalent for about 250 years. The Ruku sailor incident may have been a mere pretext to pick a fight with China. This was all consistent with that. Here's where the story gets interesting. For almost 250 years, the Japanese had already annexed a portion, the northern portion, of those Ryukyu Islands and made it more or less a protectorate. This, however, was all hidden masterfully from China, as throughout this entire period of time, the Rukus paid their regular tribute to China. Whenever the Qing sent its tribute legations to the islands, and this was done eight times over the course of its dynasty, the Rukus hid any evidence of Japanese presence. That's just incredible. At about the same time as Japan sent the Treaty Ratification Party to Peking, it sent an expedition to Taiwan. The Qing government protested and tried to defend it, but Japan argued that Taiwan, and argued disingenuously, that Taiwan was not part of China. The Qing government argued that Japan had breached its 1871 non-aggression treaty. It would take England and the U.S. to intervene as mediators. In the end, the Manchus agreed to pay the Japanese for the Ruku incident victims and reimburse the Japanese its cost of the Taiwan expedition. In return, Japan recognized Taiwan as belonging to China. Implicitly, however, the settlement was a tacit admission by the Chinese that the entire Ruku Islands belonged to Japan. Japan 
formalized all of this by annexing the islands in 1879. One English commentator at that time summed up this whole affair that China had paid Japan to be invaded. Another incredible display of the Qing Dynasty's weakness at this time. This is a good place to end the episode. There's more from the Japanese in later episodes. The Boxer Rebellion comes very soon as well. Before I leave this episode, I want to share more information about my new podcast series. Its title, The Meiji Restoration, A China Contrast. It is a different approach than just a retelling of the Japanese Meiji Restoration. Stay tuned. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.